Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I'm reluctant to tell you this, because it'll cue you into some videos I made when I was 23, 24, 25, but I have a YouTube channel. I've had it for years, it's called View From The Bar, and I was once upon a time in the habit of making regular videos for it, pretty much weekly. And what I was mostly focusing on in those videos was, I mean, there's some random ones here and there, but for the most part, I was working on this project called cringingly, I now feel, in retrospect, called Kingly Endeavors. And the point of Kingly Endeavors is that I was reading all of Stephen King's novels in chronological order, and, I, and then discussing some of the threads that run through them, which, just to give you, like, an idea of what it was about, the most interesting recurring thread that I found in Stephen King's work was, the like, the motif, or the thread, or the trope of confinement. And I'm going to get back to the YouTube thing, because that's like the meat of the episode. But it, but it's fair to say at this point that virtually everyone in the Western world is familiar with at least one or two Stephen King stories. The Shining, It, Carrie, you as a bookish podcast-listening person, podcast-consuming person, are probably familiar with a bunch of Stephen King movies and books and short stories. In my Kingly Endeavors journey... Uh, which I basically abandoned three years ago for some reason. Although, to my surprise and constant delight, people have gotten in touch with me here and there over the past few years to ask when I'm going to get back to it. Even, and it makes me think, like, even if people aren't necessarily watching the videos, I think that when you, if you set out on a big project like this to consume, like, vast quantities of some cultural commodity, people want to see you reach the end. I think, like, even if they've only given you a few minutes of their time, like, sampling two or three videos or two or three podcasts, like, they're still, they've been, that's an investment, and now they're, like, emotionally or at least intellectually invested to see what comes of it. Anyway, when I abandoned it uh, three years ago, I had gone through 21 novels, starting, I think, in 1974 with Carrie, and then I left off with his book Insomnia from 1994, which is one of King's weirder books, and contrary to popular belief, it is not the source material for that Christopher Nolan movie with Al Pacino and Robin Williams. It's a weird story, it's kind of terrible, it's about an old man who can't sleep, and, and now that he can't sleep, he can see, like, people's aura, um, and these balloon strings that trail up from the backs of their heads, and, and these balloon strings trailing up from their heads, like, reflect their mental health, or their safety. Like I said, it's not a very good book, and like virtually everything Stephen King has ever written, especially in the 1990s, it's about 10%, maybe 15% too long. And I'm not exaggerating there, I know like 10 and 15 is a big round number, but it sound, and it sounds kind of comical, but a keen reader, and I'm thinking, in terms of keen, keen readers, I'm thinking of a certain Jacksonville pen merchant who's listening to this, a keen reader will never read a single page of Stephen King of, of Stephen King's prose without seeing at least one sentence that uses eight or more words than it needs to. But yeah, in order to see, like, the beauty in that bloated shit show, Insomnia, you have to get a little meta with the book and start looking at it within the framework of Stephen King's entire body of work. And I think, I mean, this is, some people are totally averse to this kind of reading, but I think you have to take into consideration the fact that Stephen King in the early 90s had just gotten sober. And I realize, incidentally, that I'm, like, talking about books you haven't read, so maybe this is not particularly interesting, but I... Insomnia is one of very few Stephen King books that never got, like, a full 
made-for-TV movie. It never got a cinematic treatment. And I can, whenever I stumble upon one of those Stephen King novels and I read it, it, it tends to be the case that the reason it was never adapted is because it was terrible. Like this, uh, there's another novel right after it called Rose Matter. There's a, a fantasy novel called Eyes of the Dragon. But anyways, it, in, the, in the early 90s, Stephen King was getting sober. His family staged an intervention because, because having grown up as like this dirt-poor nerd that nobody wanted anything to do with, he suddenly became, in, in the 1980s, like... A fucking rock star, like a, a rock star in a way that will I I think will never happen again to an author. You can kind of imagine it would it would really fuck up you know a dude in his thirties, three kids who's never had enough money to save. There's a great article like Crack.com writes you know comedic um, articles. Most of them are not very funny, but there was one that's always stayed with me, and I think it was a two-parter, and it was called Ways That Growing Up Poor Fucks You Up. And the author talks about how he's now in a situation in his life where he's finally, for the first time, earning, like, six figures. And I think it's just him and his girlfriend living together. And he says, like, once I had a lot of money, and he's fairly young, he's like, once I had a lot of money, like, I started buying fresh vegetables. And it felt weird that they would crunch. Because I had, up to that point in my life, I'd kind of only eaten, or, like, overwhelmingly, eaten vegetables that came out of a can. And he talks about eating, like, a gourmet burger. And he had only ever in his life had burgers that were either frozen or they came from mcdonald's which i guess also means frozen but like and i felt this way too like you, you eat a gourmet burger and you're like fuck that's a lot of beef like and maybe it's quality bread like it's a whole different like sensory experience than the sensory experience of getting mcdonald's and i think mcdonald's there's been some like science about this that mcdonald's is all like like it's just like pure endorphin like eating a bag full of salt soaked McDonald's is closer to a sexual experience than a culinary one. The way that all that salt and sugar hits your hits your brain. But yeah, he was like he bro he bit into a, a like a gourmet burger and he was like, "This is not a burger. This is fine. I don't know what this is, but a, a burger is McDonald's." Like this flat, pale, tepid, flavorless thing. And he also talks about the fact that like when you're growing up poor, you don't have money to save. And so you never learn how to save. And this we now see, now this is like common knowledge because we've seen the downfall, the financial downfall of so many professional athletes, kids who grew up poor, it's suddenly extremely wealthy. And they have all these people coming into their life that they think are there to help manage them. Those people are actually there to exploit them and to rob them. Anyways, so Stephen King was doing a lot of cocaine in the 1980s. He was drinking like a 12 pack of Miller every night. And he was also drinking Scope. The mouthwash? That was one of the weirdest little details in his memoir, which is one of the, which is the book that I have read more than any other book in my life. Is Stephen King's memoir. It's called On Writing, and it is just like the charmingest thing on earth. Like if I'm really upset or if I'm sick or something, I read that just because it's like straight conversation. And I don't mean straight as in like ah oh, hard talk, but it's just friendly. <laughs> but yeah, like Stephen King would get ripped on cocaine, and then he would do a shot of Scope mouthwash. And in the book, he had, like, refined opinions about why Scope tasted better than Listerine. It was weird. He was like cocaine, the motion picture. But what you see in that book, Insomnia, which is like 700 pages, is that he is trying to piece his talent back together. That's what you see all through his early, mid-90s work. He's trying to piece his talent back together again after... The, rav the, the mental and emotional ravages that were done to him by his drug addiction. 
I heard, I forgot who was talking about this, but two comedians were talking in an, in an interview about Richard Pryor experiencing this. When Richard Pryor, like at the peak of Richard Pryor's career, or maybe just during the ascendancy, he was like, he was one of the rare, like popular comics who was also a comedian's comedian. I, that distinction is kind of hard to describe. I'm not sure entirely what it means, I don't think, but it's kind of like a comedian who's just doing things who's more interested in doing things with the form than they are interested in getting a laugh. Like, for instance, this came up a lot recently when Norm Macdonald died, and Norm Macdonald, incidentally, is my all-time favorite stand-up comedian. His moth joke, which you can find on YouTube, is one of the most influential things I ever heard when I was, like, an adolescent, and I, if you listen regularly to this podcast, you will see why. But, for instance, Norm Macdonald would tell a very long joke, and if nobody laughed, this is part of why he got fired from Weekend Update, he would just smirk at the camera, and it was such a self-satisfied smirk. And apparently that's why he got fired, is because he was planning to tell an O.J. Simpson joke at the time of the trial, and the head of NBC was friends with O.J. Simpson and warned him against doing that. Also, there's a story in that book, Seinfeldia, which is a history of, like, the development of the sitcom Seinfeld, they were talking about how Larry David was, he would do stand-up every night, and he was the comedian's comedian at this particular comedy bar. And what that meant is, like, he would start telling, you know, an, a, a, an angry series of jokes about how frustrating it is to park your car at the mall. And his riff about parking his car at the mall would go on for five minutes. People laugh, there are a few really good jokes, and then he's talking about it for eight minutes. And then 10 minutes. And suddenly, from the back of the club, all the comedians waiting for their turn to go up, all the comedians start laughing because, yes, the jokes are good, but there's this other layer of comedy, which is, he's still talking <laughs> about parking his car at the mall. So I guess when they say, like, oh, he's a comedian's comedian, what they mean is, like, there is a, an underlying layer of comedy that enhances and transcends the joke. So... Norm Macdonald telling the O.J. Simpson joke, it's a stupid joke. I think it's something like Johnny Cochran during the trial held up. He held up the, the hat that O.J. Simpson, you know, that was found at the crime scene and that O.J. Simpson allegedly wore during the murder. And uh, O.J. Simpson stands up and he says, you be careful with that. That's my lucky stabbing cap. The joke is funny, but what's funnier... <laughs> is the idea that Norm Macdonald <laughs> fucking sacrificed his job to tell it. So anyway, Jesus Christ, I was talking about Richard Pryor and drugs. So Richard Pryor is considered a comedian's comedian, and one of the things that evoked such envy from his colleagues is that he was like the only dude who would go up every week, and he would have a new hour, a solid new hour of rehearsed and memorized material. And to put that into context, I think George Carlin was considered like a maestro of comedy, almost unconscionably prolific, because he had a new HBO special, a one-hour special every year. Maybe it was like every other year. I think it might have been every other year. Anyways, one of the things that happened when Richard Pryor got sober is he was like, he wasn't as imaginatively fertile. Like, he could not generate an hour of material every week. And so, after this long peak on drugs... When you get sober, there's this crushing period where you're like, am I less than everyone thinks I am? Was it, was it the drugs that made me who I became in the spotlight? And I get the vibe. Like, he doesn't go into that much detail about it in his memoir, but I get the vibe in just reading through the books of the early 90s that Stephen King might have been having a similar crisis. And so in these bloated books from the 90s, you see a lot of overstatement, these laborious descriptions, and it, it feels as though he isn't sure line by line, 
whether he's really getting his point across. And so even though Insomnia is not a very good book, and I probably would not have finished it if I didn't have to make a video about it, there's still something kind of moving in that meta perspective of saying like, okay, this is, this is, this is the portrait of a writer trying to get back on the horse. The one other major thing that I noticed in Stephen King's work, though, apart from the addiction, the recurring theme of addiction, is the thing that I mentioned at the fucking top of the show. Something you might have noticed, too. And we'll start, we'll stop talking about Stephen King in a minute, I promise. But the other thing that I noticed in Stephen King's work is confinement. Por ejemplo, Cujo is, a, is about a mom and her son trapped in a car. The Shining is about a family trapped in a hotel. Gerald's Game is about a woman handcuffed to a bed. Misery is about a writer trapped in a room. Carrie features a bunch of teenagers trapped in a gymnasium. Under the Dome is about a bunch of people trapped under a dome. Firestarter is about a little girl being liberated from her government captivity. Eyes of the Dragon is about a kid being trapped Rapunzel-like in a tower. The Green Mile is set in a literal prison, as is the Shawshank Redemption. Desperation is about innocent people being kept in jail cells, and on and on and on. So confinement is a recurring thing, and addiction is a recurring thing in Stephen King's body of work, and I think it's fair to say those are the two biggest occupational hazards for a professional writer. Loneliness, confinement in the room, and confinement in the head, and addiction. The drug addiction, I think, is a reaction to the loneliness. So one, the first occupational hazard of being a writer, loneliness, gives way to the second occupational hazard, which is the addiction that you pick up in an attempt to stave off the loneliness. So Stephen King is more, his body of work is more interesting than I think we give him credit for, although, for me, personal, like, I think a great deal of that interest is, like, meta, and, and I don't know if he totally intended it. It's just that he so nakedly presents himself on the page, whether or not he intends to. Since he's releasing one or two books a year for, like, 50 years, he ends up revealing there is a there is a, an under-the-surface narrative going on of a man who is, you know, going out of his mind, losing it, and then bringing it back. But so now I'm back into that project... Um, I'm doing near-daily personal vlogs on YouTube, at least for the time being. And the channel, in case you want to take a look, is called View from the Bar. But, to bridge us to the top, the real topic of today's episode, YouTube. More specifically, the topic of today's episode is YouTube and food. First thing I want to say on this matter is that I am not a foodie. Not at all. I can happily subsist on, like, ramen and eggs or rice and beans for days at a time. My girlfriend is a bit of a foodie, and I think she's almost offended that I don't get as riled by the, pro by the prospect of rich, savory food as she does. And I don't understand it either, why it just does not ring my bell. It's almost like a sexual orientation. Like, I will look at a very lush and ornate presentation of avocado toast, for instance, which incidentally is somehow, like, the most political dish of my life. I don't know if there's ever, if there was like a dish in the 80s, then maybe, maybe it is a generational thing. Like every generation has a dish that is theirs and it's, and it's like looked down upon from, from their elders. But avocado toast somehow became this like fucking portrait, this metaphor for liberalism gone amok. Mostly I think because it's so like ridiculously expensive, which I kind of don't understand. Although I suspect that at least like a, I really think like part of why avocado toast is so expensive is the fact that it's so goddamn photogenic. And I think people will genuinely turn, fork over a few extra bucks for a dish if it can double as in if that dish doubles it's it's not only sustenance it's also instagram content which reminds me 
I'm kind of obsessed with the homeless people in my in my neighborhood. It's a long story, but I've noticed over the years that if two people are panhandling at an intersection, and one of them is in a wheelchair with their legs blown off at the knee, and then the other one has a facial deformity. The one with the facial deformity will get more money. And this is a totally informal study on my end, but I do think that it's the case that people, or people in America, or maybe just Miami, that people are more sympathetic to someone who is considered ugly than to someone who is considered disabled. And I think, this is a shot in the dark, but I think that people are more conscious of the fact that they might themselves be considered ugly, or maybe maybe they do feel ugly or less attractive than, you know, the celebrity culture that's all around them. And so a person's deformity rings their empathy bell more resoundingly than the prospect, than they can enter that person's experience intellectually and emotionally more so than they can enter the experience of someone who is disabled. Which incidentally, both of those things are going to happen to all of us. We will all lose our sex appeal and become disabled. And it's one of these things that's so frustrating when I hear someone argue against universal healthcare, and I'm sorry to get political for like a minute, but when someone's like, oh, I'm healthy and I take care of myself, why should I pay? Why should I contribute to the payment of other people's medical care? And the reason is because yes, you are healthy now. You're healthy right now. A day, a day will, if you're lucky, if you live the span, a day will come where it takes you six minutes to get out of a chair, and those grueling six minutes of pushing yourself to your feet, that is just the beginning of a perilous, unbalanced four-minute journey to the toilet, which you might not reach in time. The point is, there is nothing that gets me, like, emotionally riled when I'm looking at food. But I do like watching competitive eaters on YouTube. These challenges where, for instance, a dude, it's almost invariably a dude, when you, and when you hear this, you'll understand why. A guy will eat every sandwich on the Burger King menu in one sitting. And I don't know, like, I'm so, sometimes I'm like, fuck, I, I, I try to lasso these huge ideas and read these big books, and I try to think of myself as like a fucking, oh, I'm better than my situation. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm a bartender at a family restaurant serving pizzas all day. This is bullshit. I'm a, I'm a higher intellectual. And then I sit down on YouTube, and someone's like, I ate every burger on the Burger King menu in one, <laughs> in one sitting. And, and when I see that, I'm like, fuck, every everything on my schedule. I need to watch this now. So like, like they'll do that or they'll go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and they will try to get kicked out for eating too much. And so like that's funny and it's it's interesting. Um, but then like for instance, there's a there's a, an annual competition called the Wing Bowl and it's just, it's a chicken wing eating competition and the woman who has won consecutively a few times, I think she ate something like four, let me look it up. Okay, her name is Molly Schuyler. She also does a lot of YouTube videos. Molly Schuyler, uh, and she's famous. I think she's like a hundred and... Yeah, she's a, she's 127 pounds. And in Wing Bowl 18 on February 5th, 2010, at the Wells Fargo Center... Oh, shit, it's over. Oh, wait, I guess maybe COVID? It says the final Wing Bowl, which was Wing Bowl 26, was held on February 2nd, 2018, and the winner was Molly Schuyler, who devoured a record 501 chicken wings in a half hour. This woman is incredible. She also does, and it's great because she goes to restaurants where they have one of those things like, oh, if you can eat this gigantic, extremely spicy burrito or hot dog or pretzel, which nobody has ever done, you get $500 and your name on the wall and a t-shirt, whatever. And what's great about those things is like the proprietor of these little businesses is sometimes like a fucking, a fucking venomous 
sexist and in comes this 128 pound woman and they're just like oh okay you want to try the big uh, hot dog okay that'll be fun to watch <laughs> and then you see their faces sink as she starts annihilating this gigantic food challenge and they're like oh fuck oh fuck i have to pay this woman to have 500 or 250 dollars whatever it is so i watch all that shit and i love it and it's great and i would recommend it but then somehow what i end up watching and i'm i know i'm not alone I end up watching fast food reviews. It's a weirdly robust subsection on YouTube. These people who mount their phones on the dashboard of their car, they record themselves sitting in a driver's seat in the parking lot at Taco Bell or Burger King. And in the video, they just try the new sandwich or the new Cheeto concoction or burrito situation. Usually, as someone has pointed out, it's all one take. So there's no like interesting cuts. There's no momentum. You just watch this person buy a sandwich, park their car, and eat the sandwich. And as they're eating it, they, sh they do things with their brow, they strike these pensive expressions, and, um, and then they're like, yeah, I can taste the cheese. It's so weird and like hypnotic. And it makes me want to eat that shit. Not just eat that shitty food, it makes me want to eat huge quantities of that shitty food. What I begin to crave isn't so much the savory taste of a meal, but the gratification, the deeper, more sensuous gratification of gluttony. And I indulge the temptation way more often than I should. Not for huge quantities, which tends to be expensive, but usually, even just fast food, huge quantities of fast food can be expensive, but just fast food, usually because it's convenient. It's there on my way home, and I'm, I'm such a fucking busybody, and I can't burden myself with the 10 minutes it'll take to fucking fry an egg. And I seriously suspect that the consequences are gonna come home to roost before long. I don't even want to think about how that might manifest. But when I think of that, the inevitability of my own fucking dismal, deplorable eating habits coming back to bite me in the ass, it makes me wonder about some of these bigger fast food reviewers. Big, bigger not in terms of girth, although that's of course a factor in, in, in many or most of these fast food reviewers, but I mean the more famous fast food critics. But like I'm talking about the people with like 3 million subscribers, and there are several of them. The ones who post several videos a week of themselves eating the newest dish from Arby's or Burger King or Shake Shack. Like if these people ever decided to get healthy, it would hurt their livelihood which is a weird, sad, poetic irony. I'm sure most of them would hang on to their subscribers, like they would find some other way of exercising their charisma, because obviously people are not just watching because they want to watch this person eat their food. It, there is some kind of weird charisma that you have to grant them, even because it's difficult. Like, I feel this way when I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast on occasion, or when, when, I, when I'm walking by a TV that has sports on it, and like the sports have been interrupted because of lightning or whatever, and the sportscasters, they have to keep talking. They have, the words need to be coming out of their mouths. It, it just cannot be dead air. And the reason is because people just want a voice in their life. They want that feeling of company, similar to what I get when I, when I reread for the dozenth time Stephen King's memoir, on writing. And these people have it in spades. And it's kind of remarkable to see, like, just a, here are these average people in possession of such remarkable charisma and, and camera savviness, or at least vocal savviness, microphone savviness. But I know, like, for instance, there's a YouTuber named Shoenice, S-H-O-E-N-I-C-E. He's a, he's a competitive eater, but he's also, he has a certain kind of obsessive compulsive disorder that compels him to eat weird Things, he, like, kind of the things you hear about with pregnant women getting a weird, like, oh, pickles, give me pickles. But his shit is, like, 
he smells a bar of deodorant and he has to eat it. And it's interesting. It was interesting in the beginning, and the reason he came to popularity is because he would watch these videos and he'd be like, "Oh, I didn't know you could, you could eat that and not die." Chug a bottle of shampoo or something like that. But he would do these videos too, where and they got super popular. Where someone asked if he could like chug a bottle, like they call them slams, slam a bottle of liquor. And so he started doing these super popular videos where he would drink an entire bottle of liquor in like 12 seconds. And afterward, he would be fine. He wouldn't be fine. Like, there are some videos where he, like, you see what happens to him. But most often, like, he would just turn off the camera and, like, be fine. But I'm sure he was just, you know, writhing on the bathroom floor for 40 hours afterwards. But he kept doing it because people kept showing up. Then also you can reason, like, yeah, he probably did those... He probably chugged those bottles of liquor because people were showing up and rewarding him for it. But he was also probably telling himself that that's why he had a license to pound a bottle of liquor. I'm sure he's just an alcoholic. Anyways, that's the dark side of this. There's a there's a dark side. I'm sure there's a very dark side to the, like, the competitive eating world on YouTube. But anyway, go down these rabbit holes of watching people eat like huge quantities of food or incredibly spicy food. That's another one. And then I start craving those things viciously, even though... Left to my own devices, I eat modest portions of very plain food. But anyways, it's interesting to marvel at those temptations and how they can be aroused in such a such a sinister way. Like, you can see now, when you watch those fast food review videos, like, they always have, like, a Burger King, Taco Bell, McDonald's commercial in the middle and at the center. Which I guess is a kind of addiction. If I was in a savvier frame of mind, I would find some way of looping this back to the Stephen King addiction theme. But I'm not going to burn myself out trying to do that. I'm just trying to get in, back into the rhythm of podcasting. The reason I was gone for like the better part of a month is because I dove into the novel. Because there was like a 30-page bridge section that I had to write. I kept putting it off. I didn't know how to get into it. And then suddenly, I fucking figured out a way into it. And once I was into it, there was the momentum of like a creative act going well. And so I put everything in my life on hold, basically. And I just fucking wrote and now the book is done done, I just need to type it, <laughs> finish typing it up, which I think I can do this week. But anyways, I know, like, if I start tasking myself with trying to be clever in the podcast and looping things back and including a bunch of sound effects and whatever, it's going to seem technical and intimidating, and I'm just, this, this, this hiatus is just going to go on and on, I'm going to keep procrastinating. So, this is a very simple episode, thank you for bearing with me, I'm sorry if if this was any kind, if this is a remote inconvenience uh, that I was gone for so long. So, thanks for listening. As always, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to the YouTube channel where you can check out the vlog if you're interested. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.